episode 164 of some like it scott i'm your host scott harvey and i'm joined as always by my co-host scott shelton today on the podcast we're dreaming of the glitz and glamour of 60s london in our review of edgar wright's last night in soho but first how are you scott doing pretty well i uh i'm recovering from i don't know it just feels like it's been a long week scott i'm recovering from vicariously living living through you at the at the Virginia Film Festival. Go. No, it's, it feels like it's been like a long time since we recorded, not in terms of number of days, but in life experience. I don't know. I'm just I'm just saying words at this point. They don't actually mean anything. It's funny because we recorded twice last week, so we actually re- recorded more than we normally would. Well, yeah, just since we, since we last recorded, which I believe was a week yeah. ago when we recorded the Halloween. That's true. Yeah. Kills episode. It feels like it's been longer than a week. I don't really know why. Today was a long day at work. It happens. Happens to the best of us. Happens to the worst of us, too, probably. But here I am, ready to talk about, I think, what we can comfortably say is a movie. Last Night at Soho is a movie. That is that is true. Um, Scott brings that up, I think, maybe because we were having a debate before the podcast about what constitutes a movie. Um, we're talking that about actually isn't even why I said that, but that is, that is yeah. funny. That is a funny specific connection. Specifically, we were talking about Bo Burnham's Inside, which we both agree is definitely a movie. If anyone yeah. wants to call us out on that, please leave us a comment. Uh, we're, you're on welcome to iTunes. come on the pod and stay muted the entire time and listen to us talk about why. It's right. Please, you can post your comment on Apple Podcasts. Just make sure to leave a five-star review along with your comment. Um, yeah, please do that. Obviously. But yes, Scott, like you said, it, it's definitely been a long you know, week for me just because of the weekend. Um, yeah. You know, I traveled to Virginia, like you said. I was there from Friday night until late Sunday night and then had to drive three hours back on Sunday after because I stayed to watch the final movie of the festival, which was Come On, Come On. And uh, I had to drive three hours back after that. So I got home at like two in the morning. Then I was in court yesterday from like 9 a.m. <laughs> to 4 p.m. It was I was there oh, all baby. day trying to negotiate a settlement in this case. So did you negotiate um, the settlement? I did. Yeah, I did. Making uh, deals, guys. Always just be like, closing. It involved it had it required my like brain to be firing like on all cylinders and it just like wasn't there on four and a half hours of sleep um so i i was able to catch up last night which is good i'm still a little fatigued but feeling better but um yeah well i'll be talking about the movies some of the movies that i saw in the second half of the podcast but um as as an experience the festival itself was fantastic um i want to go back next year um, Charlottesville is a really cool place. Everything was super well located. Nothing was too far away. Um, the main theater where I saw four of the six movies that I saw, the Paramount was a beautiful theater, like old fashioned marquee outside balcony and everything kind of like yeah. Tivoli and Chattanooga, Scott. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's, you know, a lot of places in New York like that, but it was, a, it was a really cool place to, to have the, you know, big movies at the festival. Totally. Again, I'll talk about the movie second half, but everything i saw was either good was from on a scale from good to amazing probably like i didn't rate any movie that i saw lower than four stars out of five so i picked them really well i think which i i mean i kind of figured like i 
We strategized. We strategized about what movies you you were going to see. Yeah, I picked movies that like I had already heard were really good or like was like Sean Baker or Mike Mills, right? Who are like two uh, directors that I absolutely love. So um, I, I knew what I was getting into. And um, I think I, I did it well. I'm excited to try it again next year because, again, it was a, it was a fun time. But long weekend. Um, we'll get to that in the second half of the show because I'm excited to talk about some of these movies, um, which you've seen a lot of them, too. So we can have a little bit of a discussion. But first, our, our main order of business for this episode is uh, Last Night in Soho which was a movie that we've been, uh, you know, hotly anticipating for what seems like forever, kind of like Dune, which we talked about last week. It was definitely um, on the list for 2020, I believe, the most anticipated. One of our Yeah, it was, it was high on my list, uh, I yeah. believe. But uh, this is the sixth narrative feature from director Edgar Wright, and it begins in present-day England where country girl Ellie, played by Leave No Trace and Jojo Rabbit star Thomas and McKenzie, leaves home behind... And old. Gla- old. Yeah, and old, true. Uh, leaves home behind for the glamour of London of the London College of Fashion, where she hopes to realize her dream of becoming a big name in the world of fashion design. When her time at LCOF gets off to a rocky start, however, Ellie moves out of the dorms and into a small upstairs bedroom in the home of the elderly Mrs. Collins, played by the late Dame Diana Rigg. As soon as she does, however, Ellie begins having lucid dreams in which she is transported back to 1960s London, where her identity begins to blur with that of a young woman named Sandy, an aspiring singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Sandy is a confident and beautiful woman who instantly attracts the attention of talent manager Jack, played by Matt Smith. The two quickly become business partners and lovers, but as Sandy's fame mounts, a dark side of Jack begins to emerge, and back in the present day, Ellie begins to fear that the twisted events she is reliving may have actually happened not far from her new bedroom. Scott, Last Night in Soho, blends horror, social commentary, and the trappings of the Italian giallo films of the 60s and 70s in a unique package unlike any film Wright has made previously. But is this journey to the past a scintillating piece of original entertainment, or does Wright bite off more than he can chew in arguably his most ambitious film to date? I think both. Maybe mm-hmm. more one than the other. I found the first, we'll say half of the movie, to be engaging. I found it to be entertaining, though imperfect in parts, which we can get into even for the first half. The second half, though, my guy dialed in his third act of Baby Driver and said, why don't I do you one better? And ran that train as far as he could <laughs> off the tracks. It was not a good second half of the movie on almost every in almost every respect. Uh, the film, I mean, I, I was we did not review Baby Driver on the on the podcast. It came out about six months before we started the podcast. I think that, you know, we if I'm we saw it together, if I remember correctly, back in the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. And I believe you enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought that it's. It's probably my favorite of his narrative films. You like it more than like Hot Fuzz and yeah, um, I do. I've ne- I, I mean, I like direct the- Scott Pilgrim or no? Yeah, Scott Pilgrim would probably be my number two. I don't know. I like okay. all of the Cornetto films, but like I don't love any of them. I would say, and I don't. Okay. I wouldn't say I have loved any of his narrative features. Again, the movie that I have loved the most from him is probably The Sparks Brothers, which came mm-hmm. out this year. His documentary. So that's yeah, sorry, sorry. One. I thought you were a big um, Scott Pilgrim fan, but maybe I really like Scott Pilgrim. It's okay. between that and Baby Driver. Okay, well, I don't it, love any of them. Not to get us super far off track, but yeah. Baby Driver, I thought had a similar issue where I found the first 
two thirds. I mean, the opening scene in Baby Driver is just so good. I mean, such a such a good scene. Mm -hmm. Um, and the third act just falls apart completely. Like I have no idea. Like I don't know. He looked like he like took an Ambien and just went crazy in the third act of the of the film. And <laughs> there's this weird. I feel like this. There's this like weird comparison where I feel like he doesn't do like he does something crazy but like not in the way that just like he just went wild in the third act like he did something very specific and focused in the third act of the movie and that thing was very specifically bad <laughs> in the yeah. third act of this film um there yeah like we'll get into that i don't i have many words that we don't need to say yeah we can talk about it later uh but like i think that the film was a huge disappointment frankly um psychological horror with you know social a social message and themes that are worth exploring is exactly the kind of horror that i like that i usually engage with best and enjoy the most um and i liked the style of this movie early on i think anya taylor joy and thomasine mckenzie and some of the things that that you sort of see in their in their shared scenes you know, flashing back or however you want to describe this, these sort of out of body experiences in the 60s, set in the 60s with these like really um, well contrived mirror shots of Annie Taylor Joy, like walking down the stairs with Thomasine McKenzie, like in these mirrors next to the stairs. Like, I think that that's just like really wonderful craft. Um, I'm a sucker for a good mirror shot, and especially to the links this goes to sort of track in mirrors, I think is really cool. Um, the soundtrack and how it ties in to the first half of the film is great. Annie Taylor Joy singing downtown was very nice, but there's a point in this film where Thomasine McKenzie's character sort of really, really becomes unhinged, I think. And that's just like the, I mean, we could have stopped the movie there and said, who knows what happens? <laughs> it would have been better probably to not have known. Um, but I think that this is the kind of film that that gives you a level of unease. At least it gave me a level of unease. And knowing that there's this, there's going to be some sort of twist coming. I didn't, I didn't tie all of the twists together before they got there. But I had a general idea of where the twists were going, and I wasn't happy about it. And when they were confirmed, it it didn't make me any less unhappy about it as as those things sort of unraveled. Um, there, yeah. I almost just got sucked right back into talking more about the ending again. It's just like a, it's like a black hole. It's hard for, not to talk about my thoughts. Movie, yeah. For sure, but, uh, but look, I think Annie Taylor joy is again, good, but like not great to be honest. I think Thomasine McKenzie again, good, but not great. I think who's who plays his, her like love interest at, were there school, other people in the movie? Yeah. Michael, and Michael, a Zhao, a Zhao. God, horrible. I feel really horrible bad performance. for him. Just well, a horrible it's, not, it's, it's it's the writing that I feel. Like oh, yeah, for sure. Really but like sometimes you just can't get past it. He was done really dirty. Matt Smith is good, but I mean, he's not in the movie very much. I actually think Matt Smith is probably he's not in the movie at all. I mean, like he's yeah. a, he's has like eight minutes of screen time. Probably. Yeah, but I think that he's really effective, like in spite of having played like every flavor of British character imaginable from Prince uh, Prince Philip to all the way to like doctor who and now to this like scummy pimp i think that like he kind of he can do it like he's really good he's got a lot of range i think it's a pretty good performance but 
man, this ain't it. Yeah, this is a massive disappointment. This is definitely the biggest disappointment of the year. Um, and I think, you know, there the common opinion has been, oh, you know, the first two acts are pretty cool, and then it, it goes off the deep end in the third act. I understand that take. I don't particularly care for the first two acts of the movie either. I agree the third act is the worst part, but it is engaging. It is certainly a very watchable movie. However, yeah, I, I, I honestly think some of the style is part of the problem for me. And I hate to bring this movie up like anytime we have a bad movie, but I the, the reasons that I disliked this movie were very similar to the reasons that I disliked Promising Young Woman. Um, because I feel like they were both have, trying to have a commentary about misogyny and even Treatment of domestic women. violence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and both of them had this sort of like slick, flashy style and sort of genre type stuff going yeah. on that just really cheapens the severity of the material that they are trying to examine. And then in this film and in Promising a Woman, right, in the third act, the story choices just completely muddle, just completely muddle, like the the effect that, um, or, you know, the the message that the film is trying to have. Because, what, what know, is Scott, Wright, what is the message that the film is trying to have? Well, there, I couldn't there quite, are two. I couldn't quite puzzle it. There are two. I mean, I think the overarching message, and this is what I have heard Edgar Wright say, is kind of, that we don't need to be we we need to like that nostalgia is not necessarily a good thing i guess um because we have a character who starts out as very nostalgic for the 60s love the 60s right ellie is all about the 60s yeah. and she's transported back everything seems really you know glitzy glamorous cool there's that great shot where annie taylor joy walks out and you have the marquee with thunderball and all that she walks into the club like tracking shot it's really cool um and it's all great. And then all of a sudden, you know, the misogyny of the 60s starts getting realized and we see the dark side of everything. And it's kind of supposed to be about how, hey, we don't really take this into account when we're romanticizing the, you know, the eras like this, right? We don't we don't think about the politics of what was going on at yeah. this particular time. We only think about the good parts, which is OK, cool. Like, that's an interesting idea. I am down for a film to explore that. But I think so the movie overshadowed just by everything else in the film. Well, because I think the movie does romanticize the 60s, right? Like, I don't think like you have these needle drops, you have like Anya Taylor Joy, like dancing in the clubs and everything. And it makes and like, again, everything. It's all shot really, you know, glamorously um, similar to Promising Young Woman, again, with this really sort of slick, poppy style. Um and I just think the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? Like, I don't think, I think Edgar Wright wants to make this point about nostalgia being dangerous, but he also wants you to be like, oh, that was a cool needle drop when, you know, that happened in the club. Um, I mean, I personally don't really see what's wrong with that. But because I think he's, again, I think he's contradicting himself. Like, I, I think. Well, he's showing you how easy it is to romanticize the 60s. But really, there's this little gross. Uh, yes, uh, in a in a perfect world, if you want to give it the friendliest interpretation, and I don't doubt that that's what he was intending. Again, I don't doubt that what Emerald Fennell was intending with, with "Promising Young Woman" was, you know, to to make a serious point. But I just think that it doesn't come across that way because Edgar Wright is a filmmaker who is so known for his needle drops and for this slick style and everything like that, and so. 
for me at least being familiar with his work i'm like he doesn't want to sacrifice the needle drops like he doesn't want to sacrifice the stuff that he loves doing in movies that you know looks cool in movies i mean baby driver was just a giant needle drop the whole movie was a needle drop and um he doesn't want to sacrifice that stuff but he still wants to have this like point that he's making but that's not even the ultimate problem for me. Like, yeah, that, 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 that wasn't my problem. But the, what you're about to talk that, about is, is my that problem. is problem B. Problem A is that I feel like the point that he is trying to make about men being Bad. the issue, right, is completely, you know, thrown out the window by the final twist that, you know, he puts in this movie. Like, I don't know if you want to talk about it yet or not, but um, I don't care. <laughs> Sure, I don't care. Most people have probably seen this. If you're listening to this, you probably have watched the movie. I mean, so the reveal is that the person who, so that Sandy is actually Diana Rigg. Um, and that, as a matter of fact, she was not killed by Jack as uh, Ellie sees in a vision. She killed Jack and killed se- other men who, tens yeah, of other men, tried to commit violence upon her. And they just handle it so poorly, right? Because they have these really like canned lines of Ellie being like, I understand what you did, right? Like, and like, it's obvious that they want that to be what you take away, right? They want you to be like, look at the things that men drive women to do with their actions. But they shoot these final scenes as if it is Halloween kills. And, you know, the Diana Rick's character is like Michael Myers is this evil killer. And like you're, you're in your head, you're just like completely lost about like, so what am I supposed to be feeling right now? Because the way I see it, she's a psycho crazy killer. Right. And the movie wants you to like, again, the movie wants you to empathize with her and be like, look at what she was forced to do because of the position that men put her in. But Mm -hmm. it also wants to be this like giallo horror movie, right. Where they have, you have like this crazy killer. And then they have like a like one of the things that kind of stops her is she has like this vision of matt smith's character who like strikes her right like hits her in this vision and like that kind of is supposed to be seen as like a good thing again you don't like it just gets all mixed up in the end um because like she is you know she's trying to like she and she goes after the boyfriend too which there's some weird racial stuff going on there because he's black. There's also like a scene where she bursts in on them in the middle of the night. And like, I, it made me, that stuff made me uncomfortable. Um, a little bit. It's, it's bad. Like it just, it completely muddles it. Like I said, and I think in, in the pursuit of like making something slick and, you know, having these callbacks, I guess, to like these giallo movies that he wants to be, pastiching here because he always he's always making a lot of references in his movies um he just loses the plot like he really does like that's that's ultimately what i feel like what happened what what is what is what happens at the end and then the last scene is also really bizarre of like again the fashion show with them wearing 60s clothes like what lesson did we learn here and then she looks in the mirror and she sees Anya again. And I'm like, huh? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, I really don't. I don't know if your reaction is similar, but. It's it, muddled is like a kind interpretation, I think, of what happens yeah. in, in the third act development of themes, you know, played earlier in the film. 
to not to even leave alone the the narrative issues like the actual like literal plot details that make no effing sense whatsoever i i do find it a bit confusing and muddling the point to when, when the point you're trying to make is look what all of this like violence and trauma that women experience can drive them to do which is like i guess slightly different than promising young woman promising young woman's trying i'm to not saying it's it's no you know, i know i know you're 1v1 not. I know. like no, it's I, I know you're not i just it, similar reasons that it's I a similar vibe really sure. sour about what happens at the end of the movie yeah I, I think i think the film generously maybe is trying to say you know look what women have to do to survive in this world ultimately they have to kill if you want to say to start with you have to kill that your, you know your like your aggressor and then once that happens, the, there's like this chain of events that leads you to become this like horrible sil- serial killer, I guess. I don't know. Um, but Very dramatic. It doesn't really feel like there's like a resolution of that. Like it, it, it almost just feels like Joker. Like it stated like this is bad. And look at look at all these bad things in the world that are causing this to happen without like actually really saying anything about it. Um, like I, I almost... Not, not that I mean, I was also thinking of promising young woman, but I feel like the the lack of like impetus behind or like in front of the message that it was trying to give, like it's just stated an obvious fact about the world without any real meaning to it. And then she dies and it's like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to feel. Right. Because like, you know, she was again, she look at what she was became because of men's actions. But also, I'm glad she did not kill Thomas and Mackenzie and her boyfriend. Right. Like. Yeah. I feel like and I feel like that plot that that part just didn't even need to come into it. Like it's just a terrible decision to make her the killer or to make her like this her backstory. Like I just feel like there's a lot more effective ways to like show the implications of like trauma against women beyond them just being like silent. I mean like obviously I think like the baseline message would be women are like silenced into a corner and like oppressed like societally in a way that prevents them from you know, being the people they could be otherwise in a supportive environment. And this like takes that and like tries to like play it out to the end of the line. The when, most like, extreme like yeah, degree. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and not not to mention like she's not even going after a man at the end, right? Like she's going after Thomas and McKenzie. Like and I think that's the point, right? It's it's one thing if she's like if the third act goes a direction where or something. Yeah. Or like yeah, the third act goes somewhere like I did this thing and I've like had to live in like mixed regret like mixed feelings about it for all these years and you explore these like narrative themes with like the two of them in conversation in some way or like some other plot developments happening and not like guess i'm guess what i didn't just kill jack i killed 99 other people and now i'm gonna kill you (laughs) i've got a patrick bateman body count over here (laughs) yeah they're in the ground of your room um yeah i i just found it to be obfuscating what feels like a a point like a thematic development that could be that could bring more like deeper meaning to to the movie it's not like the most earth-shattering commentary but like it's an interesting point to explore in a movie like this like i don't know that it has i mean it has been explored in other movies but i don't know i it 
I, I feel like there could have been a good, there definitely could have been a good version of this movie made that is about the same things as this movie wants to be about. Yeah. I mean, at its this core, this movie is a rape revenge story. Like, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I may, I'm starting to wonder whether I, I like these types of movies at all because, you know, Promising Young Woman was kind of trying to be a similar type of thing. But I will say the French film Revenge is a rape revenge movie that really works. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get them right just because the subject material is so. I I think that I think that like, again, trying to be like put my like reasonable hat on like the film effectively imparts a message that like. It really sucks to be a woman in a society that you know, handcuffs you to like the, where you're at and doesn't allow you to grow, but it's so distracting to then have like, all right, actually I, I couldn't be who I wanted to be. So I just murdered everyone. Yeah. Um, and rented out like, my like fifth floor room or whatever to women who I may or may not have also murdered. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, we have the two extremes here with this movie and promising you a young woman. It's like, Here's what you do if you're a woman in this position. You either turn into a psycho killer or you die, right? That's what happens to her at the end of Promising Young Woman. And it's like... Well, she dies, Scott, she dies at the end of this movie, too. So she also dies. Well, she yeah, that's and dies. <laughs> that, that is true, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. It's just like, no. Like, <laughs> there has to be more than this. Like, like for example, I, I guess the, the main part, maybe this is like a, the answer to this is like, oh, this is, an, this is an us problem. But like, why are we talking about the fact that she was a, ser- a serial killer at the end of this movie? Why is that the thing we're talking about at the end of this yeah. movie? Why like, is it not the thing that the other two thirds of the movie was dedicated to showing us, which is that yeah. she was a victim of, again, this pimp, basically, who... And a society, an entire society. Arming her out, yeah, yeah, to various men. Like, if you want to keep climbing up the ladder, you got to... Which she wasn't you know, even doing. ...have sex with men. Yeah, she wasn't really. Yeah. Which is crazy, because it's Anya. I mean, <laughs> she should have been. It's um, Anya, eh? <laughs> uh, anyway, Scott, um, you know, we got pretty in-depth there. Um, but let's... Since we talked about Anya there, we can talk about the performances a little bit, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor Joy are kind of the two dueling. I mean, Thomas and McKenzie's the lead of the film, let's be honest. And I feel like that was another yeah. big mistake that the movie made. But um oh, her and okay. her and Anya Taylor Joy, you know, are the complementary characters here. We were obviously very excited when we saw both of them had been cast in this movie to, you know, actresses that are two two of the big young actresses up and coming actresses like it, it absolutely it must be said um in hollywood what did you think about their performances here i thought they were fine honestly i think that leave no trace was better for thomasine mckenzie obviously yeah. obviously quite different performance we have here um very reserved quiet performance in leave no trace whereas here it's not that she's more outgoing necessarily, but the film is much louder. The context around her is much louder. Um, and I think she molds to fit within her band towards that. Andy Taylor Joy, like, I mean, it, it's a, it's probably going to be a memorable performance in some respects, but I don't know if it's memorable for the right reasons. Unfortunately, I think it's fine. She fits in. She perfectly, she's perfectly well cast as, a 1960s Soho starlet. 
I mean, she has the look. She has the charisma. She has the presence to play that kind of role. I mean, look, like, honestly, the first scene you see her in, you're like, she's brand new. Like, you don't, obviously, you learn this over the course of the scene, but, like, she's never performed before in a club. Like, you wouldn't know that the way she carries herself. Almost mm -hmm. in some ways, she's, like, out of place in that respect. Um, she doesn't, she has this confidence that doesn't necessarily match with her experience, or at least the experience that the that the movie implies. But she holds her own and, and fits into that role. But the longer the movie goes on, the more it sort of strays, I think, from that role as well, because... It's not long until she's, you know, a drugged out prostitute, essentially, is what she becomes. Um, and, and then she's not in the movie for a long time. I mean, she, she yeah. is has a very insi insignificant role, honestly, in the grand scheme of things. Like, not I mean, she's probably the second. Not narrative-wise, but like in yeah. terms of time on screen. I mean, she, I mean, it's like her and Diana Rigg are probably the second most. Yeah, yes, I, I agree, but like, there is a lot of screen time that is like just Thomas and McKenzie. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it, I'm glad Thomas and McKenzie is doing something different. But I just wish that it had been better, I guess. And I do think a lot of it's in in the writing. But I also think that, you know, I talk about maybe Annie Taylor-Joy fitting the like archetype of the kind of character that her character wants to be like the kind of person her character wants to become in 1960s Soho. And Thomas E. McKenzie, I think, very much fits the bill of the kind of person that this character is and not the character she wants to be. It's almost like this sort of weird compliment. Like, she comes off and plays very well this, like, reserved, quiet girl from the countryside vibe in this film and doesn't necessarily fit, the, her persona doesn't necessarily fit this sort of, like, I don't know, Anna Winter type, you know, fashion uh, designer role that she yeah. wants to she wants to be and going to, you know, design like fashion school and whatnot. Um, that, so that's an interesting dichotomy, I think. But it's like it's like good, but not great. I'm just like stuck on the performances are just good, and not great. And I think that's just it's it's a limiting factor is the context around this movie. Around yeah, this I don't know. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like my Thomas and McKenzie uh, stock is trending down a little bit like. I I almost do feel her getting typecast slightly in a way. Like, I think <laughs> Jojo Rabbit is the outlier because I think she was a different character in that movie. I think in this movie, in was Old, she? in Leave No Trace, she is like that demure, timid, like she looks a lot younger than like other people her age. She has like that tinny little voice, right? That is like kind it's of high-pitched. The New Zealand and, accent that she Yeah, high-pitched and it just makes her sound like... I'm, you know, a it's very girl. breathy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, like it fits that type of character, obviously, but like that's what she's been cast in, is my point. Like, I feel like yeah. she is that in old to some extent. She is definitely that in Leave No Trace, and she's definitely that here. Yeah. I guess she's like Jojo Rabbit. Jojo. Again, yeah. she's she is like more, a lot more like take Alive. charge, confident, yeah. like, yeah, character, which I like seeing her. Um, and <laughs> Even that if said, I don't she also it, lived in that movie, lived in the wall. So, you know, you went some. You so lived. like, look, ultimately, obviously, it was right to put Thomas and McKenzie in that role. And it was a right to put Anya Taylor-Joy in the role of like the much more confident character. It's just like, I just want to be watching Anya Taylor-Joy instead. Right. Like, I mean, I that's a you problem. <laughs> it may, it, some of it is. But again, like she is 
a movie star. Like there is no doubt about it. Like when that so that, first that's scene, why she's not playing the the girl. I, I from know, the and that's what I'm saying. It <laughs> yeah, fits. Yeah, yeah. It fits the characters. But like when that first scene happens and she just walks in and she just like owns the screen, like just owns it, and I'm it just makes like, no sense for that character to do that in that scene. That's my only thing. Yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, look, I think for efficiency's sake, they want to be like, look at this. She comes right in. Yeah, she's confident. She immediately grabs the attention of this guy, and now we can just like move this along. Yeah. That's um, fair. And and again, I think some of it is aspirational, right? Like that is what Ellie wants to be, and she's obviously not. She wants to be able to walk into the room like that and command everyone's attention. Yeah, because um, by by the end of the movie, what you learn is that her, these visions aren't real. That's not actually what happened in the past. Yeah, and so it makes you question. But she, you, I mean, she even styles she styles herself after the after Sandy, which I actually thought that was a good look for Thompson McKenzie. The blonde hair worked for her. I will. I just have to say, but um, agreed. Yeah, yeah, I, it's just again. I understand why it had to be this way for the characters that they were trying to set up. I just don't know about Thomas and McKenzie like leading a movie. I think she's a good actress. I don't know if she is a lead for me. I definitely no, she led Leave No Trace. That An but... Anya Taylor Joy is. Mm, I mean, I feel like her and Ben Foster were like. Co-leads. Co Again, I think it's better when she's playing off someone. Like in Jojo Rabbit, like she has Roman Griffin Davis and Scarlett Johansson to some extent, like that she is playing off of. I just don't know if she has enough of a presence to keep me interested the whole time. Even in a uh, character like this, right, which is, I mean, a, a character like this, which is, you know, not supposed to have a ton of presence, I guess. I mean, like, again, that's kind of what she is about. I just like I want to see her do something different, right? Like, like I'm just it's getting a little bit old hat for me. And especially when it's put alongside Anya Taylor Joy, who just again owns the screen and it and but then like doesn't have very much screen time. It's like, why am I not watching her more? Like I want to be watching her more. Well, don't worry, Scott, you can see her in the power of the dog. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what her role is like in that. Obviously, her third movie of the year. Um I don't think she's I, I don't think she's bad. It's just like just kind of bland to me, I guess. Like she's at this point, it's it's starting to become old hat, her doing this type of role. Um You're not saying that about Sierra Sharonin, though. I don't think she does the same role in, in every movie at all, but we don't need to go down no, that role. I'm just messing with you. That road, I'm just messing yeah. with you. Also, Scott, um, I'm joking. She's not even in I mean, she's barely in the power of the dog. You know, she doesn't have a significant role at all. Well, I mean, hey, that's what I said. I don't, I don't know about her as a lead, so I guess I'm getting what I wanted. But no, she's I, not on I screen do, punching, punching Benedict Cumberbatch in the nose. Let's, let's put it that I, way. I, I do think she is still a good actress, but like I say, I think she is trending down compared to people like Anya Taylor Joy, Jesse Buckley, who I've now watched. And I mean, Jesse Buckley's a little bit older, I guess, but um, you know, just to, a, a, a couple, a couple people that come to mind. Of like young actresses whose like stock is trending up, right? Who are who are starting? I mean, to be yeah. To bigger, be fair, Jesse Buckley movies. is like ten years older than Thomas e. McKenzie. I'm pretty sure, okay. but yeah, that's I don't know. Again, I just thought of her as like up and coming, but um, it's, she certainly is up and coming. But she's not. Yeah, Jesse Buckley's 31. Thomas e. McKenzie is 21. She's that young? Okay, I thought she. I thought Thomas e. McKenzie was older than that. Okay. Um, no, she was yeah, like actually like a senior in high school and leave no trace or whatever. Not the best example. Like, again, 
Yeah. Again, there are other examples, though, of people who I feel like are in Anya Taylor-Joy's camp. Um, a name might not be coming to be right now. Maybe somebody like Caitlin Deaver is another example. But um, yeah. I just I, I don't know that I think she's quite as, as there as I would have expected her to be at this point after watching Leave No Trace, you know, because I'm I mean, such a small we were, movie. But we were both very wild by her in that movie, though. It's, I mean, you know, excellent movie. But um, anything you want to say about Matt Smith or Diana Rigg or I think I said my piece about Matt Smith. I I like Terrence Stamp plays this sort of creepy old man who she thinks is Jack for a while, which that was just also like Terrence Stamp is good. I mean, he's perfect for that role. But like. What was the point of that storyline? To be a twist. I guess to get you hooked, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It didn't work. Yeah, um, I mean, that that was the twist that I saw coming. I'm like, this guy's like, obviously not Jack. Like, that was going to be that was like a clear twist that was happening in the movie. I didn't know what direction it was going to go. But he also that. is a really weird dude who just says weird stuff. Like, I don't get it. Like, I knew a lot of women back in the day, kid. Don't we also think he's like a bad dude, right? Like, are we just supposed to be like, oh, thank God he wasn't this once very specific bad guy. Like, he's probably still a really bad, bad dude. And it's just like. He has like one scene in like one of the flashbacks fine. or whatever, right? Like he's like the cop or whatever that. And he's like, yeah, that's here. right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. That's the reveal, right? That he is like, he's the he police officer. Yeah. yeah, he's like, yeah, who is like trying to help her, but not really. I don't know. And then Michael Ajao, right, who plays John. This is like terrible character who is just like a complete simp the entire movie. <laughs> like that is literally what his character like total Kyle Thomas and McKenzie is going nuts. Like by the end of this movie, like freaking out of the library, she pulls a knife on. Is it a knife or she pulls a weapon on scissors, Joe Costa, scissors on Joe Costa, who's her like, you know, roommate that was yeah. a mean girl. Um, and John is just like, Oh, please talk to me. Let me help you. I just want to, you know. Why won't you just tell me your problems, Ellie? Yeah. After <laughs> after he, they're like, they go into, they go into her bedroom. They're like making out. She freaks out because she sees a vision on the ceiling of, of Jack murder, brutally being murdered by Jack. Yes. Yeah. So she, first of all, she flips out as like, you know, Loses it's supposed it. to be an in- intimate moment between the two of them, you know, pushes him away. Then Diana Rigg comes in and is like trying to kill him. And even after all of this traumatic experience, he's like, tell me what's going on, Ellie. Like, <laughs> But Ellie, why won't you tell me what your problems are? <laughs> he apparently turns into a hobbit at some point in this movie. But um, yeah, it's not good. Like it's it's a terrible one to make. I feel like if we were if let me put it this way. If if this was a if it, if the gender roles were reversed here, if this was a female and this yeah. was her character, we would talk be talking about how horribly sexist this movie was, like because yeah, that's you know, that's kind of what his role is. But like he um, he didn't have many friends in fashion school, and good, he just wanted to get connected. You know what? Good on Edgar Wright for reclaiming the narrative and saying, "Look, men can be one-dimensional love interests as well. <laughs> it's not just women who can do it." Good job, Edgar. Um, Hold my beer, said Edgar. Okay, Hold my Carly. What, anything else you want to say about this movie, Scott? Uh, I mean, we covered a lot of the thematic stuff there at the end. Um, sure, you know, yeah. the style. The style of it is. It's. It's, it's stylish. As it's, you, it's, it's, it's stylish. Slick. Yeah, it's slick. As you it's enjoyable. It's Wright engaging well. through its style. 
this again, not just thematically. We we spent a lot of time talking about the thematic side of this film, losing losing track of things. But my God, even more than the thematics, the plot just even lo- like loses itself so much. Like you're talking about Michael Jow's character, like still trying to like, I don't know, be a loving boyfriend to this girl who just went completely AWOL on him um, and then almost murdered her, his her roommate in front of his eyes in the library. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that makes no sense. But also just like really, frankly, like not much of the second half of this movie makes sense in terms of the plot like i do think that the terrence stamp character not being jack is like a good but foreseeable twist but like the fact that sandy's been chilling in this house for 50 to 60 years after murdering a bunch of people and somehow like doesn't really seem like ever was really questioned or people concern themselves with all these like really well-to-do men who are just disappearing in Soho. Like, I, like what the fuck is going on in this? I, I this just movie? like, I don't like, even know like why she cares at a certain point. Like, why does Ellie care at a certain point? Like, you know, I guess, you know, when she discovers, like she thinks that this might be real or whatever, but it's like a 60 year old murder or whatever. And she thinks that Jack is out there. But then once she discovers that Terrence stamp is, is not Jack, it's not like, why is it not like, oh, it was sad or whatever what happened to to Sandy? But like, there's nothing we can do about it anymore, right? Like, it's been 50 years or whatever. Like, this is unfortunate. It was a cautionary tale. But like, what momentum is there to keep moving the plot along? I guess is what I'm yeah. saying. Like, they, that's why they just it's like they have to just throw this bonus twist in there to, to like get to give you an answer of like what all this was about, right? It was uh, it was about Sandy being the actual killer which is dumb. Yeah. And I also think that the whole side. Yeah. Like what you're saying about why does she like, why is she even like, what is she even trying to really accomplish by doing like going to the police on all these things like this, the whole stuff with like her visions, like seeing her mom and seeing Sandy, like none of that even is all explained the stuff or made sense was- of. And no idea, no resolution to that whatsoever. I even, I totally even forgot that was a thing. Like, you think it's going to be a big deal at the beginning, and then it just like goes away. Not good. Not good at all. All right. Uh, I guess we can move into wrap up now, Scott. Uh, what was your favorite scene or moment from last night in Soho? Um, I, I mean, Andy Taylor Joy singing downtown. Maybe, maybe that's one. Maybe the other one is, I kind of mentioned it already. The tracking shot in the club. The, I mm-hmm. don't remember what the name of the club was. I can't remember uh, what it's called either. Yeah, off the top of my head. But uh, I, I, the Cafe de Paris, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, there's this tracking shot. That's Anya is in the scene. But then you have in the mirror, you have her reflection is Thomasine McKenzie. And they're tracking down the stairs. It's in the trailer. But yeah. The, I mean, the full scene's not in the trailer. But yeah. But like they yeah. do this really long tracking shot with like the mirrors on the stairwell and then the mirrors in the back. You can maybe it's it like more swapping subtle. back and forth. Yeah. Like, who, yeah, who's maybe, a, maybe it, it, to me, there was a lot of subtlety in it and like a lot of attention to detail in getting the that element of these flashbacks. Right. And it's more than just like having Thomasine McKenzie in the mirror or having Anne Taylor join the mirror. It's like more than that. Um, it, it goes sort of all in on that presentation. And I really enjoyed that part. But yeah, I mean, probably just singing downtown in this empty club where no one's even watching it's just a 
she's really good at singing. Yeah, she can do it all, Scott. Yeah. Um, I liked the opening scene with Thomas and McKenzie just like singing, dancing and singing along to a record that she's playing in her room. Like mm. that was what I wanted from the movie. Like I wanted more of the, just like the vibes, right? Like weirdly, I think it just, this movie just like popped into my mind as I'm thinking about it. But weirdly, I think once upon a time in Hollywood does a much better job of doing a cautionary tale about the sixties than <laughs> this movie did. Um, while still having all of those like fun vibes moments or whatever. And this movie wanted to have those, but it was just like, I just feel weird, weird about them when the movie is also trying to tell me that the 60s were like a bad time when, you know, misogyny was rampant and people got murdered. Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is trying to be a vibes movie. This isn't trying to be a vibes movie. Yeah, I know. Again, I just but weirdly, it comes off because even though there's such different movies, weirdly, it comes off as a better sort of cautionary tale in a way about the 60s. But yeah, I I, I do think that. I, yeah, I mean, the opening scene's nice. I'm just, I'm still so hung up on the ghost thing, right? Like, why did her mother kill yeah. herself? Well, again, in, in retrospect, in retrospective, in retrospect, it feels weird. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I honestly yeah. don't know. Maybe if we watched it again, we would figure something out. But why I did Ellie get a hickey on her neck from the scene that she went? Right? That was so strange. And then she just like flaunts it. Oh, gosh, that was weird. Um, yeah, but the opening scene was good. I had a smile on my face watching it. That sure. smile quickly went away. But <laughs> let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give last night? So, yeah, I'll get to my score in a second. I got to say, I through thinking more about this and talking through this, I know we didn't talk about promising young woman to any real extent on the podcast. I actually think that's like maybe probably a better movie, even if you disagree with like the premise. Like that movie is like committed and like make. And like the the actual narrative it chooses like makes sense and holds together. You can just disagree like fundamentally with like the the thematic direction that it goes. But like at least that movie like like scene to scene ties together in a way that makes sense even if you disagree like disagree on premise. This this is one that just like feels like a total wreck. Like just feels like a complete wreck of a of a narrative film. I don't know if you agree or disagree yeah. with that sentiment, Scott. I, I know that you probably I dislike *Promising mean, Young Woman* more, but I think you're probably right. But it's like ultimately, it's just like a pointless debate for for yeah. me because I don't I don't like either movie at all. I feel like both of them jumped the shark in pretty depressing ways in the third act. So maybe Promising Young Woman is a little bit better. Like I, you can understand more of what they were going for in Promising Young Woman than you it's can. It's more in coherent, this movie. yeah. But like at the end of the day, I don't like either movie. I don't want to rewatch either movie. I don't think that either movie is good. Like so, it's it's a wash for like for, for example you can understand bo burnham's character in this movie and why he might be interested in being with someone you know like carrie mulligan's character yeah. in the film. but but again like the bo burnham thing i feel like is really it's very on the nose like what they do in, in promising sure. like i don't think it's revelatory at all just as i don't think it's like super revelatory but they're just beating you over the head in this movie in the first two thirds with like all this oh look how awful that the men are right yeah. we get it the 60s man and we're bad <laughs> uh but the music was cool sure, sure yeah 4.3 4. 4.0 for me it's not a good movie at all um it pains me to say that because i was really looking forward to it but it gets um, 4.0 for getting made the film got made and so you gave it at least a 4.0 <laughs> yeah. I feel good. I feel confident saying that everyone who is involved with this movie has made better movies and will make better movies. Heck, Edgar Wright made a better movie this year. He made a great movie this year. Go watch that. 
Thomas and McKenzie made a pretty good movie this year with old. And Better Joe movie Joy has one. made a ton of a ton of great stuff. Um, just not just go year. watch all. Just go watch all of that. Um, that's about all I have to say. Just go watch the Queen's Gambit again. Everyone will think everything will be okay. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. Like I feel like it does feel weird now because Anya Taylor Joy like is the bigger star of the two of them. Again, to see her like sidelined again, I understand why they did it because of the the characters, but. It, it just it feels like one of those things like in retrospect, now that Anya Taylor Joy has become a bigger deal after the Queen's Gambit, like it feels weird to see her not leading something because it feels like that's just where she needs to be now and where she's going to be. Right. I mean, she's going to be leading Furiosa. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of Last Night in Soho. Uh, as promised, when we come back from the break, uh, I believe you have a little bit of casting news, but then we are going to turn to my time at the Virginia Film Festival and talk about some of the movies I saw and what we have, what you listeners have to look forward to um, with some movies coming out uh, in a few weeks and later this year and a lot of stuff with Oscar implications. So we'll get into that uh, after the break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. back to this episode of some like it scott scott before we get into the virginia film fest talk uh you wanted to mention some more casting news for oppenheimer christopher nolan's next film keeps uh building out its cast and two huge names just got uh named today scott do you want to tell us about this there's actually been several rounds of casting news since the last time we talked about this film which the original i think announcement was that killian murphy's gonna be playing oppenheimer Oh, right. We didn't talk about the actors who got cast. Yeah. 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 But Emily Blunt was cast as sort of, I suppose, the primary supporting role. I assume. I assume that oh, this is a dig at my favorite director, but I, I assume that a woman won't be the lead role in a Nolan movie for the foreseeable future. Uh, we'll see if that Crystal changes. Facts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, we'll see if that's different <laughs> at any point in the future, but I assume that's going to remain true in this one. So I assume that Emily Blunt will be playing the support, the lead supporting role, if you will. And I, that's very exciting. I think Emily Blunt is, I really enjoy her in A Quiet Place Part 2 and a quiet, the original A Quiet Place. And yeah, she she's good. She's good. She's good vibes for money, probably. So I think that she'll fit right in with this, you know, typically British cast. And then today there was some additional news uh, casting in this with people who I suppose are, I guess, less British, um, getting a more American flavor for this American story. And that is Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon have both been cast as supporting roles in the film as well. That's exciting to me. We went back and forth uh, about, you know, being the noted Matt Damon hater that I apparently am. Um, you were asking me if I was disappointed in this news. Uh, we went back and forth about how I don't actually dislike Matt Damon. I just think he's overrated um, and that he has had good performances this year. So we'll see if he continues to impress me. I would, I, you know, if I were trying to keep things on the DL, I'd say this is his first Nolan movie uh, to not spoil a different Nolan movie, but it's not his first. I, Nolan I think movie. it's fair enough to spoil Cat, it. Yeah, Cats point. out of the bag. He wasn't interstellar from with a, with a surprise appearance that, you know, was not advertised before the movie came out. Uh, which I think people were pretty taken aback by. But they are reuniting in an official capacity um, for Oppenheimer. And then Robert Downey Jr. gets his first crack at a Nolan film. I'm interested to see if he'll ever do anything good post-Iron Man um, and post-Avengers Endgame. Because uh, so far, so bad for him. 
Oh, right. He did do little. I was sitting here trying to think, what did he, what has he even done since Avengers? Yeah, he had do little. Um, it's safe to say this is his first big um, swing, I, mean, I guess. And so, it, it, it's funny that you say that because I guarantee you, Doolittle's budget is bigger than this than this movie. Yeah, no, I, I know, but in terms of what will actually make more, um, <laughs> true. I would say that a Nolan film would make more than Doolittle, but who knows? Um, God, God help us if it doesn't. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what he can do as well. I mean, I think we saw him so we came to just see him so associate him so intimately with the tony stark role it's like yeah even watching his older performances like you watch him in something like kiss kiss bang bang um you can see like the seeds of the the tony stark stuff being planted there Um, i mean the last thing that he did that wasn't you know avengers or marvel related before doolittle i think was like sherlock holmes (laughs) the second one i think that's the last thing he did that wasn't Tony Stark. Yeah. So I, I want to see him do something different than that shtick that we, you know, became accustomed to. And obviously he was, you know, phenomenal in the Marvel movies, but um, it's time to move on. And so I'll be interested to see him there. Matt Damon. Yeah, I think Matt Damon's had a phenomenal year, like between Stillwater and The Last Duel. Um, two of his, well, I think Stillwater especially, he gives a really good performance. In, and then The Last Duel is just a, a really excellent movie that we talked about a couple weeks ago um so you know i'm on board the matt damon train and i'm you know he's appeared in one nolan film and it was my favorite nolan film so that's always a good thing but i don't think he's anything close to being the the reason why he was not the best part of that movie by far but he's not a bad part of it i don't think there are really many bad parts of it at all um but anyway that's uh, a different episode I'm still looking forward to that 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 this movie. It would be hard to kill my buzz for it at this point. Um, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, with that, Scott, I think we can talk a little bit about um, my time at the Virginia Film Fest. Um, sure. So, just as like a general overview, I did see six movies, five of which you had seen. Those being uh, Mass, Red Rocket, Flea, uh, The Lost Daughter, and Come On, Come On. The one film which I did see that you have not yet seen was actually my first film on Friday, and that was Spencer, the Princess Diana film directed by Pablo Lorraine, who made Jackie, also another film about sort of a famous royal woman in a way. Um, So I don't want to say too much about Spencer, uh, but I will briefly address it since you know you haven't seen it yet and then i do want to talk about just a couple of my favorites from the festival but um okay spencer is a really interesting movie um i think almost everything about this movie is excellent and then there's the screenplay um stephen knight if you go look at stephen knight's credits you will see one of the most all over the map screenwriters that like is possibly out there like you just never know what you're going to get with this guy I don't think this script is like trash or anything, but I think it's very on the nose. Some of the conversations that these characters have are, they really just come right out and say exactly what the major themes of the movie are. And, you know, it's very much about, it's a pro-Diana film. It's very much about the pressure that was put on Princess Diana to conform to this very rigid, structured um you know lifestyle that you have to be as a royal and her being more free-spirited you know just being very psychologically broken down by what the royal family did to her and um 
suffocated by you know all of the requirements of you know there uh, there's a big thing in the movie about how like it's set over three days it's set over christmas eve christmas day and christmas um and the boxing day like i don't know exactly what the year it was but i think it's like the year before she dies but um i doubt it's the year before she dies and she she has she has um is it really the year before she dies maybe not well death is kind of like a theme in the movie so that's kind of why i say that it's like it's kind of like a looming specter in the movie there's a whole thing about the ghost of anne boleyn continuing to show up again i don't want to say too much but it's kind of a ghost story in a way but um december 1991 she is when the movie is set Mm -hmm. and then when did she die uh later but she was still i think in 91 she still would have been married to to prince charles yeah or no is she not married in the movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah i don't know my role when... history i guess i guess she she wasn't married to him then so when she died so but yeah, the, yeah. they're absolutely married in the movie but um yeah, yeah but, she but yeah anyway she died the... in 1997 oh okay i didn't realize it was that late but anyway yeah there's a whole thing in the movie about how like they have like a dress marked out for her for every meal it's like this yep. is what you're wearing at christmas breakfast this is what you're wearing at christmas tea like and mm-hmm. it's just you know obviously just one of the ways that it symbolizes just how suffocating this lifestyle is um but Stephen knight like i said it, there's just some conversations particularly between charles and diana that um are just really like he's coming out and being like oh the you know they don't see us as people and all this i mean there it, it's really just it's telling and not showing that was the main fault of the the screenplay um in my opinion uh, i don't want to again i don't want to see too much because you'll see it but um i do think though i mean there are nice moments like some of the moments between um diana and will william and harry the two young actors who played the young will and harry in this movie were awesome they were they were excellent i had never seen them before but they were really talented child actors and they're like there's just some lovely scenes between the two of them there's one scene in particular which between the three of them on christmas morning she wakes them up early and they're like playing before anyone else is up and there's just like a there's such a joy and freedom about that scene that just like it, it was it was a really lovely scene in the movie and they're just there's some really again there's some really good scenes in this movie i think pablo lorraine's direction is very strong he really knows how to compose a shot like there's a lot of oneers there's a lot of like these really wide far away shots of her in the house he does like a he does like a really good job of like somehow making it seem like oh she's this tiny person in this big place but also she's suffocated by the bigness of the place like it's a hard like dichotomy to pull off but i think he's able to convey both of them and that's kind of why i'm disappointed that the screenplay is the way that it is because i feel like his visual skill is so evident that like he could show so much of this with just the, his visual acumen right like you don't need to come out and spell it out like this um but for whatever reason there's just kind of an awkward meshing of direction and screenplay the other of course i haven't i don't even think i've mentioned her but kristen stewart plays um, yep. princess diana very good in the movie very very good um will definitely be in the oscar race probably my front runner at this point um she's she's very good in the movie um what are the other big ones i mean you haven't seen francis mcdormand and tragedy olivia coleman and the lost daughter i'm sure will be in there yeah um i don't think they'll go to olivia again 
but maybe I'm they trying won. to think what else. But um, Kirsten Dunst maybe in Power of the Dog is she a lead? Uh, they maybe they'll campaign for her in lead, but she's not. Yeah, I mean I'm sure there's somewhere forgetting, but um, anyway, she'll definitely be in the Oscar race. She may even be the front runner like in a couple months, but um, I think she's, she's the front runner right now. Yeah, yeah, she, you may be right about that. She she's very good. Um, it is a, it is one of those biopic performances where it like it does not come off as an impersonation. She, she you know they make her look like Diana. She changes her voice a little bit, but like she is much more committed to playing an actual person than she uh, is. Lady like, Gaga, trying, trying to impersonate. Yeah, Lady Gaga definitely will be in yeah. there. Jodie Comer maybe for the last duel. I don't know, but they're campaigning. Other Ridley and, Scott film. Yeah, yeah, but the movie is very interesting. Like I. I Definitely recommend talking about it. It's it's one of those where like it's messy. It definitely has flaws, but it's save your thoughts, boring. Scott. We're gonna talk about it in two weeks. Yeah, again, I'm not. I'm just saying my general review here. It's messy. It has flaws, but it's almost more interesting because of some of its flaws. So I definitely recommend checking this one out. And I forgot to mention also in Spencer that uh, two supporting performances that I really liked. Sean Harris is really good. He plays the cook the chef at at the castle where they are staying on for christmas and then uh-huh. uh timothy spall is also really good he plays this like like a butler type figure in the house who kind of like is almost like hired to follow diana around and make sure she doesn't like you know get into too much trouble but um he's really good sally hawkins is also in the movie she plays like one of the main aides that um diana has a really close relationship with I definitely think there's some questionable stuff that happens with their relationship towards the end of the movie, but that's all I'll say. Alrighty. My two favorite movies that I watched, Scott, were probably on the my two movies that I saw on Saturday, Mass being the first one. Um, you saw this at Sundance way back at the start of the year. Back in January. Uh, it's actually out. Yeah. yeah, it's actually out now in some theaters, but um It was out in New York like a few weeks like a month ago. It's not playing anymore around here. Yeah, this is the directorial debut for the actor Fran Kranz. He also wrote the movie. Um, we, I think, if you go back and listen to our Sundance episode, it was probably discussed by Scott and Paul. But um, I think it, the yeah. setup, yeah, well, I'm the setup for the movie is essentially that these two couples uh, meet as part of like a therapeutic exercise, sort of years after a tragic event has happened, a school shooting has happened, in which one of the couples. Um, children was killed and the other one the other couple um their child was the shooter and also died also committed suicide himself, but, yeah. yeah um and so you know as like a therapeutic exercise they're told they're asked to come to this church um and they meet up in this side room and the large majority of the film is just a conversation between the two of them or between the four of them it's absolutely riveting um and just it was one of those combinations of like, I don't think the movie is perfect or anything, um, but like the experience was right. Like be something about like being in the theater that day, big, pretty big crowd for it in the afternoon, you know, the lights being down, just everyone being really riveted in the movie, everyone being very emotionally affected by the movie. And it's hard not to, um, hard not to be. I just like, it got to the end and it was just, I just kind of like let out one of those sighs, like, like I, I you know, it was just, really had to like appreciate what i just watched um because they they do i mean they do such a good job of exploring a lot of different threats um and that's why i think it's it remains engaging it's almost two hours long but it remains engaging even though it's just this conversation because 
there's this idea about like what do we who do we consider to be a victim in all of this right because you know there's all i i really like that exploration it's it's closer to the end of the movie you know like obviously so the the parents of the the victim of the victim of the shooting um are played by jason isaacs and martha plimpton and then reed bernie and ann dowd play the parents of the shooter and there's a conversation about like how oh well you know there was this vigil and all of this stuff held for you know all of the kids who were shot but you know the nothing for the shooter right because um you know he's not really thought of as being a victim but and i think it's really again it's really smartly placed at the end towards the end of the discussion when you've come to see things in a different way to where it's like yeah you under you understand now the loss that both parents have had to go through um this is not just like a morally black and white situation and the shooter hayden i believe is his name he he is a victim in his own way uh at the movie just does I, I mean as you can probably tell they're like it just does an amazing job of of finding empathy for all of the characters even though there are you know very different perspectives that a lot of them have there's a you know, political discussion about gun control that breaks out at one point between Jason Isaacs and Reed Bernie, um, where, you know, you're probably going to agree with one of them and you're probably going to disagree with one of them. Um, but again, the movie constantly finds empathy for both sides of this whole thing. And it, you know, it's a, it's an impressive feat because again, you're talking about one of these kids who killed a lot of people in a awful mass shooting. Obviously it's not based on a true story, but you know, based on true experiences, and you can imagine ways, it happening. Uh, it's it. It isn't a big well, jump. And Martha Plimpton did a Q and A after the movie, and she was talking about how Fran Kranz had actually spoken to some victims, like some parents of school shooting victims and stuff. As you can imagine, to like there's a really good big picture episode where um, Sean Fennessy talks to Fran Kranz about. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to listen to that. Which I'd recommend. But there's also one of the, maybe the strongest part of the movie to me is this monologue that Jason Isaacs has about how you don't know how what my son suffered. You know, you, you don't know how he suffered. And Reed, he's saying this to Reed Bernie, and Reed Bernie comes back with like, you know, he 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 know he has memorized basically all of the facts about how everyone has all of the victims, you know, were killed exactly. But it's just this conversation about like, what does it mean to actually know someone? Because like Jason yeah. Isaacs is is looking at it from the perspective. He almost has like these competing perspectives. Is like, I don't think that you guys did enough to decry what happened, right? I don't think you did enough to talk about how wrong it was. But at the same but time, I don't know what when you they say. when yeah. they try, yeah, when they try to acknowledge what happened he's like no you don't know like you might know the facts right you might know exactly how my son died but you don't know because you are not his father right you don't have the same relationship that i did um so those are just some of the things that i really like but again i think the whole movie is really well written um very nuanced very empathetic all four performances are, are incredible um they all deserve to be in the oscar right i guess they would all be in supporting um it seems like Reed Bernie is the one who is, I mean, I think he got nominated, what, at the Gotham Awards, like we talked about? He was, like, the one that got nominated. He did, yeah. Reed Bernie was the one who got nominated at the Gothams. It's just, like, almost impossible for me to say who was, like, the standout here. Because I just think they all have their moments, as you would expect in a movie like this. Um, 
Yeah. I think Ann Dowd is one of those actresses who just we don't we don't appreciate her enough. Like she is always great in everything that she pops up at, in, normally in supporting roles. Um and she obviously has more of a, a lead role here. So if if we are living in a depressing world where only one of these people gets to have a nomination, I might give it to her for like a body of work type thing. But everybody's mm-hmm. really good. I mean, Mar- Martha Plimpton has a monologue at the end where she talks about and out asks her to tell a story about her son. And I think that's that's the tear. That's the most tear jerking moment of the movie, at least for me, when she she talks about this story about him and his football jersey. And um, it'll it'll really get to you. But it's a very powerful movie. It's not an easy watch. It's probably not. It, it, you know, it may it, it will likely be in my top 10 at the end of the year but it's not one of those that i'm going to say this is one of my favorite movies or anything because it's not something that i want to go back and watch like a ton of times um but it's an absolutely outstanding movie um i don't know if you have anything to add scott obviously i think you talked about it before but yeah i I mean i i hesitate to add too much more just because it's been 10 months almost now sure it's been over nine months since i saw the movie I'd I'd want to see it again before I really commented too much further, but I was wowed at Sundance. I think it was my number two movie at Sundance. It's a movie that's still definitely in my top 10 of the year and hovering close around, you know, to the five or six spot. I think last time I I checked, Um, it's tough because it's one of those films that I saw so early in the year that I almost want to rewatch it to reassess where it fits in. Yeah, like basically a top 10 full of movies that came out in the last couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise with, you know, Judas and the black Messiah and the father are in there, but those are like weird cases that we're going to have to talk about whether we actually include them or not. And um, when we talk yeah, about I'm including movies. them currently too. Yeah, yeah. I, I have them for now just as a baseline, but I can, we have to talk about it off here. We don't have to get into it now, but um, I mean, yeah, I was wowed by it. I was absolutely wowed by it. It, it came on the heels of like a bunch of, of other movies that were also like plays that didn't yeah. have to be movies or whatever. And th- this is a movie, right? This very One easily could be a play, but it is a black bottom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the father, right? I mean, it came out shortly and after father, we, yeah. we didn't see it until after this. But, I'll, you know, all, all this like series of, of films over the course of a few months that, you know, all did like the whole like meme of like, this could have just been a, an email meme writer. Like this could have just been a play. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to make this a movie. Um, but I mean, I, I guess that is true. At the same time, for the same reason why I, you know, still liked One Night in Miami a lot and it was still very high on my list of of movies from 2020 is that there are certain experiences and certain productions, however you want to describe it, that I do think can sort of trans transgress like beyond their like original medium. If it is a theater, I mean, this again, this is written to be a movie. This is not a play. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly feels like it could be. I think that Fran Kranz has a particularly good eye for framing this particular conversation, this like hour and a half conversation with like a, a prologue and an epilogue almost. Because, yes, there's not a lot happening cinematically on the screen. But I do feel like there's just these really memorable angles that I think you get. In, it's of the it's conversation. thoughtfully like it's very yeah. thoughtfully like the shots are very thoughtfully composed. Like. It, it doesn't feel like one night in Miami where it feels like it is just a camera that's tracking through the through this room with four people. Yeah. Um, 
and I said this in my review, but like, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've been to way more movies than plays in my life. But there's something about the intimacy of the big screen that like strikes me as being different than the intimacy of being in a theater. And I think this movie requires that big screen intimacy to where you are just like really surrendering to everything that is on screen because it's it's just that kind of movie where you really need to just be there with the characters at all times. Great. And I don't I don't know if if a play could provide that, but again, maybe I'm just biased because I'm more of a movie person. But it's got the other movie that I um, loved, probably my new number one of the year, uh, Red Rocket, the new Sean Baker film. Um, mm-hmm. Saw this on Saturday night. Uh, it was kind of funny. It was it was up between this and Power of the Dog. Um, unfortunate that it came down to those two choices, but. Um, I went to to Red Rock instead. The pro- programming director came out to introduce the movie and said, "I think you guys are the cool crowd," um, which, I, like, I I thought was funny because I mean it makes sense what she's saying though, right? You have like this big Oscar, you know, Jane Campion movie um, at the big theater. Um, nah, I'd prefer that, the movie know. about grooming young women. Yeah, and then then you have the A twenty four Sean Baker movie or whatever that like that I I guess what I'm saying is the demographic was very different. Like there were a lot of old people at the festival um, throughout the weekend. There were not film festivals are old people crowds. Yeah, well, there were not very many old people at uh, Red Rocket. That was the one movie where it was almost predominantly people. Did anyone walk out? Not that I could see. Um, I think everyone was a handful of people that walked out. Pretty on board at 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 New. I'm sure you had a much bigger crowd as well too. Which I mean, we had Alice Tully, which is yeah. I mean, that's like it's close to a thousand Mm -hmm. people. I think. Yeah, uh, the movie is amazing. Um, I instantly loved it. I think, and I want to rewatch it like immediately. Like, I I think it's going to be even better on a rewatch when I know where it's going. Um, Simon Rex is the star. He plays this male porn star named uh, Mikey Saber who. Comes back to his old hometown in Texas City, Texas, after sort of falling out of the adult film industry. Um, And the movie is just kind of a slice of life. Him trying to reconnect with this community that, like, at first doesn't want to reconnect with him. um, But then he kind of wins them over. It's a movie where your emotions are very conflicted for the large majority of it. And that's exactly how Sean Baker wants it, I think. because in thinking about it more, like this movie is very deliberately set during the Trump era, right? Like it, specifically 2016, like you hear like they're watching the conventions and stuff on TV. Like you see Trump's speeches, there's billboards that he focuses on. And it's almost a movie in a lot of ways about how like someone who is narcissistic and an egomaniac and completely self-absorbed if they have charisma, right, can, you know, convince people to overlook all of those flaws about them. Um, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot going on in the movie. That was kind of the thing which struck a chord with me because Mikey is a terrible person. Like, but at the start of the you know, you're mentioning that he's grooming grooming a young girl. Yeah, that obviously, you know, obviously that hasn't really been pitched in the, uh, that hasn't been part of the marketing that, that that's an element of the film for understandable reasons. Um, but it is a major thread in the movie. He meets this girl, strawberry, Susanna song or son, son, I think is the actress. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's very newcomer. Good. Um, and yeah, newcomer. And Sean Baker, look, this is what he does, right? He found Bria Venate for the Florida Project by um, sliding into her DMs on Instagram. She was an Instagram model. He found Susanna's son for this movie. He saw her across the lobby at a th- at a movie theater after a screening of Gus Van Sant's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, that Joaquin Phoenix movie from a couple years ago. He just sees this girl across the, the lobby, and next thing you know, she's like basically second lead in this movie. Yeah. Um, and she's great. I mean, she's a star. Like, she has a ton of charisma. Um, but, yes, she's a 17-year-old girl, and he begins having – she's three weeks away from being 18. They make a big point about that. But uh, he begins having a romantic and sexual relationship with her. Like, they hold nothing back in their depiction of this relationship. That's what I will say. Um, so, so Mikey's not a good person, but he's also very funny and charming. And the movie, like – shows that and they don't try to like explain that away they don't try to be like he's very funny and charming or they don't try to take any of the air out of that right they don't they try to care to. maybe character caricaturize this yes. portrayal like a movie we maybe recorded on about on this podcast today about taking this this thing and mm-hmm. dialing it to 11 and trying to make a message out of it He's just he Sean Baker is a very controlled and natural director. He does not force anything. He does not force his narratives in particular directions. Um, he just kind of lets the movie happen, lets life happen. Because because his movies are mostly just about a day, a time in the life of a particular community. Um and yeah, I, I mean I think the movie's just again, it's it's extremely watchable and entertaining. Um yeah. You question whether you should be as entertained by it as you are, but I like a movie that makes you, you know, conflicted, that makes you ask yourself questions about that. Because, again, I think his direction is so strong, like, Mikey doesn't really change a lot over the course of the movie, but because of the way he unravels the story, our perspective on him completely changes, right? You you see him as, like, His characterization changes over the course of the film, but not him, but not him. You see him as this likable guy early on, but then like they slowly start revealing the like until at the end of the movie, like you basically can't stand him and how self-absorbed he is. And you see like, oh, this was there the whole time. Um, he was re- he was like this the whole time. But because yeah. of the way just that Baker people is, around him. Yeah. Very skillfully able to just like foreground his charisma and humor in the first part of the movie you you don't see it and he it's a very funny movie it might be the funniest movie i've watched this year like in terms of number of laughs genuine laughs that i had and the theater was laughing very loud throughout the movie um it's very funny i just think sean baker's an amazing amazing filmmaker um who's just making movies about people and about things that no one else is really making movies about um i think he's such an important voice in independent filmmaking right now um, I think Simon Rex is phenomenal in the movie. Um, he probably won't be in the Oscar race, um, sadly, but he deserves to be certainly. Um, and I think all the all the little supporting players, like in you know, like in the Florida Project and Tangerine, like these random people that he just finds, like the woman who plays. Uh, so there's he lives with um, his, his wife Lexi, who's played by 
Uh, well, they're still married. They actually make that point early in the movie. They're separated, um, but yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, who's played by this theater actress named Brie Elrod, who's very good. Then her mother, Lil, was just some another one of these random people that yeah. Sean Baker just found. And she, I mean, you know, she's great. Like, they're all great. Like, they're all just such real people. The guy, Lonnie, who's his neighbor that gets involved in some stuff. I mean, it's just... His supplier. Documentary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But another thing, too, you know, Florida Project was very much about, like, economic conditions and, like, um, you know, the plight of these people who are economically disadvantaged and living in this hotel. That is definitely a threat in this movie because, like, you know, you again, you have very conflicted feelings about the people who are in his life because they are enabling him to some extent. But he explains the reasons why in a lot of situations. And in the case of Lexi and her mom, it is very specifically that Mikey is paying the rent, right? He is financially supporting them Mm -hmm. and, you know, keeping them able to sustain themselves. And that is why they are kind of more forgiving of his, you know, gross behavior. And I think, again, that's a really smart direction to go down that wins us some more, some empathy for those characters. And yeah, I mean, I think the third act of the movie is is really good. It's one of those where it's building up and it's like, you know, you're like, oh, I, I, you know, I hope he, again, I have the utmost confidence in Sean Baker, but it's like, how is he really going to bring all this together in a way that feels, you know, it's narratively satisfying and that I don't feel like icky about, um, but he does it. And I see why people would walk out right in the first act or, you know, first or second act, because it seems like it's, it could seem like it's glamorizing this behavior, but um, you know, that if you stay, if you stick with it, like, obviously that's not the case. And like, again, me being familiar with Baker's filmography, like there's no way that the guy who made Starlet and Tangerine and the Florida project is going to make a movie, which says, Oh yeah, it's totally fine that this guy, you know, had a relationship with a 17 year old girl. Like, no, <laughs> that's, if there's any filmmaker who is l- the least likely to do that, it is him. Like he, he has a, a very uh, keen eye when it comes to the, you know, this sort of thing. Um, okay. There's probably some filmmakers who are less likely to do it than him, but I take your point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it's hyperbole, but you know where I'm coming from. But anyway, Red Rocket is a 10 out of 10. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Um, it, I don't know if it's better than the Florida Project. Yeah, probably not. I mean, we're talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, um, but I can't wait to rewatch it. Um, Weird to say that about a movie like this. Yeah, but like again, I just feel like there's so much that I could pick up on a second watch after. Yeah, because like you know, even Florida Project, right? It's one of my favorite movies now. But like first time I watched it, I was very unsure about the ending, and the fact that I was just all on board with this. Um, maybe you'll rewatch it and be like, "How could he ever make a movie about this?" Yeah, maybe so. The maybe movie turn, looks. You'll very turn it off halfway through. <laughs> it looks very similar to the Florida Project too. Like all all the whites, there are you know a ton of widescreen shots of him just like moving across the frame or standing in front of something and that is like very deliberately in the background. Um, that's you know he's he's Baker's visual style is is becoming like he he's he's got some hallmarks now that you've seen in both of these movies. But any thoughts on Red Rocket Scott? I know I was long winded there, but I just, I love the movie and I don't know you know if we're gonna have another chance to talk about. Scott, I'm sure you'll have another chance to talk about it if it's going to be in your top 10. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I just mean if we're going to do a full review of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, right now it's the only movie coming out that weekend, except for Power of the Dog hits Netflix on December 1st, like two days before this film comes out on in theaters on Friday, December 3rd. So, yeah, we'll probably be talking about Power of the Dog on that episode. To be fair, um, I don't. how much should I talk about this movie? I don't think you really did because I didn't want to hear anything about it because I was okay. so excited for it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah. know that you said that much a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Simon Rex, I mean, pretty, pretty flooring performance, mm-hmm. fully committed to his role. I mean, I know he's like famous for doing like what Final Destination movies or whatever. Like that. I think it's a scary movie, wasn't it? I think. Oh, uh, yeah, scary I think that's right. I think it's scary. But he was also yeah. an adult film star like he was in adult films. I didn't realize that. That's even yeah. that's even better. Um, yeah, I just think that's a fully committed performance. I think that so many movies, I feel like in the last couple of years have tried to tackle this notion of like toxic masculinity and, and the nar- and like narcissism associated with that and the self-obsession of all those things. And there's just something particularly affecting, I think, about just plainly laying it out on screen in a way that is that like draws you into the to the charisma associated with these type of these types of figures when they are painted in a particular light. For example, like when you are just meeting him for the first time, if, if you're strawberry or if you're meeting him for the first time in a while, like, you know, his separated wife and his separated wife's mother, right? Like these people haven't been around him for a while and this reintroduction and this new, new meeting, like, he he is charismatic enough, and these types of people are charismatic enough yeah. to woo you into thinking that they may be different or that they may be a good person or they may be different than what you remember. And the, the storytelling and that and that way of unfurling your story like very plainly and like sort of putting the audience and a couple of the characters in the film who are observing this main performance in the same shoes almost, I think is just like such an effective way to tell that story. So it's 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 not like this really like wink and nod type thing where like the director lets you in on like a little secret that this guy's like kind of a douchebag like earlier yeah, on in the film. Yeah, it's so much more interesting than a movie that just tells you. It's how not trying bad to be clever. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's not beating you over the head with anything, right? Like it's so much more interesting in perspective and perceptive. Not to see a movie where it's just like toxic masculinity is bad, isn't it bad? Because we all know this, right? But it still happens in our society. It still happens and is celebrated and is rewarded. And so it's so much more interesting to see a movie like this that is like, yeah, of course we know it's bad. Why does it still happen? Why does it still continue to prosper? Like, yeah, and, and, why, and that it, why in America? Movie. Yeah. And and that why is an experience that the movie gives you rather rather than yeah. telling you, which is what you're talking about. And I just, it just puts you in the perspective in the shoes of all these other characters like that are, you know, experiencing Mikey for what feels like the yeah. first time yeah. or I mean, the first time. And in the final yeah. few scenes, like there is some like real dread and cringe and just like, sort of like you want to just sort of peel your eyes out almost by the end of the movie, watching some of these like self almost self-destructive like scenes. Um, but he always brings it back with some great humor. Like the, when the, <laughs> the like the drug dealing mom and like her daughter and like the yeah. whole posse like comes up Shows to the house up. to yeah. like yeah the the dynamic between all of them is crack cracks you up yeah you know i i would be curious how i feel about it on a, on a rewatch as well I, I mean i i like so many movies that i saw at the new york film festival this among them for sure i do 
take some pause still with the subject matter. I certainly can understand people not being down to even with the film ultimately being critical of its analysis of this type of person. I can understand, like you said, people walking out. I can understand feeling deeply unsettled by it. I am not of the, I think, what, what did what did we discuss? Of oh, the depiction equals, depiction endorsement, equals endorsement crowd. Um, but at the same time, I do have hesitation. Not that depiction equals endorsement, but depiction at all. Like, I don't know. Is worthwhile, yeah. Yeah, get, like giving the whole, like giving it a platform thing. Again, not to endorse, but even to, to criticize some things maybe aren't worth putting on the screen, even for that. And so I do have a little bit of hesitation there, but certainly not in the craft or the performances or or any. It, it, I guess if my if I have any questions or question marks about the film, it's on it's on premise rather than um, execution. I guess is it would be would be yeah. the way to put it. Um, it's the best version they could have possibly made of this of this movie. But yeah. did this movie need to be a movie? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean more sex scenes would have been better, probably. But I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. there were a few, I will say. Um, <laughs> Look, it got its namesake out of it for sure. Um, yeah, uh, inter- yeah, an interesting examination too of the adult film industry in some ways, because like I feel like it's a pretty negative perception of it, which is which I find interesting because Sean Baker is generally very progressively minded when it comes to like well, it's, it's a negative perception like, yeah i mean i don't think it's it's not negative of sex work in the tr- in the traditional sense the i don't think that, it's, it's not shaming people, women for yeah. being in, in sex workers i, I yeah, didn't get the quite the contrary like there's a very humorous like bit about how well he wins like the the yeah. best move best oral or whatever like yeah. three times and it's like why like the woman is doing all the work like why are you the one winning this and he's trying to like I, you explain gotta it. Die. It just makes yeah. no sense. Yeah, uh, it's pretty <laughs> that funny. Was so, but that was, that was I was howling in that. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that, that level of narcissism movie. is is remarkable um, mm-hmm. in a character. But I think this is the thing that I was saying to you. It's like it, it really is a special kind of performance from Simon Rex and a special kind of direction and writing from the from the whole team. I mean, Sean Baker does so much of that heavy lifting to give you a character that's like so endearing and and so engaging, but so repulsive at the end of the movie, even without having changed who who he is. Um, And that that type of storytelling, I find that really fat. I I find that really engaging and really the best kind of storytelling. Yeah. Again, it just speaks to his skill as a filmmaker that he's able to just like make you see this character in a whole new light without having to, have the character deliberately be so different like have have such stark differences between the character like it's just yeah no, nothing it's, it's that simon well. rex's character does in this movie is surprising yeah in the moment yeah it's very believable it doesn't feel like a change or development in the character it's all smooth sailing <laughs> yeah um, uh scott real quickly uh because we're running long but um, I I did really like the lost daughter um, as well. Of course, I think it did. has some it's a good strong film. performances. Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, two of the best. Um, really, I, there's just it's a dense movie. I feel like I think there's a lot going on in this movie, um, and I it's it's definitely one I want to sit and think about a little bit more because did you have a hard time it, following the past and the present? Did did the color scheme no. work for you? Okay, so I'm just yeah, I'm I just that, making a joke about Little Women. But. Okay. Oh yeah. 
I actually think that worked really well. I think I think it's a very well directed movie. I think it's impressive, an impressive directorial effort by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think she's the way that she does that weaving between the past and present is really smart. Like almost in a Gregorovic like way. Like I think she picks her moments to flash back and forth really wisely. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very interesting movie about like people and experiences that like I don't have a lot of context for. Um, but I think that's the strength of the film that I was still captivated by it, despite not being able to really relate to the experiences that were going on. And it's also the type of story, uh, the type of female story that even when you have the context for it, if you've had those experiences, I, I mean, we were talking about this. I, I don't feel like I've seen a story about this particular type of, you know, experience like, yeah that women have ever on the screen. I mean, like, I'm not going to sit here and say I've seen every movie ever made, obviously, but certainly not one. All, that just is... all the ones about women. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've only seen the movies about women. Uh, um, none of the other ones, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I, I don't, this is not a story that has received much screen time, even among stories credit. about women's experiences. Credit to Elena Ferrante as well, I guess, because I think, you know, her her writing is obviously very strong on the page. And then I think it's adapted very well by Maggie Gyllenhaal as well. But And then the last movie, Scott, Come On, Come On, which was the closing night film directed by Mike Mills, who's made two amazing movies, Beginners and 20th Century Women. This movie, they are a trilogy, in my opinion, after watching this movie, because there are exact lines in this movie that are like expressing almost the same ideas that you see coming up in 20th century women, like just using slightly different words. Um, but that's not a bad thing. Like it's still, it's still a very different film from the others, but like they all complement each other in kind of a beautiful way. But again, beginners is about his father. 20th century women is about his mother. And then this movie is kind of about him, right. As a father. Um, and obviously Joaquin Phoenix is character in the movie is not actually a father to is not actually the biological father to this young boy, Jesse played by Woody Norman, but he becomes a father figure of sorts when he has to care for the child while his mother is off with his, the child's actual father as he is suffering from bipolar disorder and a lot of other mental things and is in a hospital. But um, it's just a really like I watched a lot of downers, I feel like at the festival, um, and like between Mass and The Lost Daughter and Flea to some extent is kind of a downer. Spencer is kind of a downer, and this movie is just like very warm and open hearted, which all of Mike Mills's movies are. I love the way that he like he has these little interludes in all of his movies about like where he, they read from literature. In this movie, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is making a documentary about like the experience of kids in America, and there's all these little vignettes with the kids that he's interviewing that are i mean they're probably like real kids and like these are probably just actual like documentary like sequences basically of him interviewing them uh, if not it, it certainly feels like that uh, to be clear it's like a it's like a podcast he's making he's not making it yeah it's a podcast yeah, yeah but yeah. it's a documentary podcast right but um it's a it's a wonderful movie um just about people connecting to each other um Again, Mike Mills is one of uh, writing. Uh, he's a very good director, but like his writing is just like I just love listening to his writing. Um, he writes female characters so well for a male 
artist. I mean, particularly if you got to watch 20th Century Women, like that just has some of the most interesting and complex female characters in any movie. Um, and I think if that happens here too, Gabby Hoffman is my favorite performance in the movie as the as um, the mother the of sister Woody Norman's of child. Phoenix's. Yeah, the mother of Woody Norman, but um, the child. The only thing that I would say that is just a slight knock for the movie is that um, I do think Woody Norman is almost like too precocious, right? Like he is almost like you could see him acting a little bit too much. Whereas, um, you know, especially when contrasted with like these kids that you see in the interview sequences who are just like so real and so natural, it does feel a little like performative. but you know he's very charming. Like there's there's no denying it. He's very charming. Um, and so I I love the movie. I mean I was always, always going to. And I think Scott, I know you liked it too. I'd be interested to see if you liked it even more if you had if you watched Beginners and Twentieth Century Women because I think they all fit together really well to tell just like this really cohesive story about our family and the way that the past and future are like inform each other um it's i really love the way that he tells the story and i'll be interested to see what he does next if he is able to find a new angle on this whole thing or if he goes in a different direction with his next film yeah i mean maybe he'll make a a quartet of movies um to keep it to keep it running i think that the i i do agree with your point about woody norman and i think this movie scott is frankly pretty slow to start i don't know if this film really gets like for the first half, it's my of the kind movie, of movie, so I just don't have that experience. But I the understand first half of the movie, like, the most interesting parts of the first half of the movie are the kid interludes. Those are more interesting than what's actually happening between Joaquin Phoenix and and Woody Norman's characters. It is, but once that once it kicks into gear in the second half, I think it gains a lot of momentum and really becomes you know quite an earnest. Basically, all the adjectives you're using to describe the movie, like earnest, you know, open hearted. Mm-hmm type film that is emotionally affecting in in a positive way i'd say by the end is absolutely true i I just think i just think that it was probably like a little it just took a little too long to build initially to be a real like we're talking like elite level movie i still give it four stars i still liked it a lot i still recommend it to people absolutely um yeah but i i did think that if i didn't have the hook of this like documentary you know this, this like this american life episode that they're making i guess more or less um it interludes i i found those to be much more profound than what was happening in the first half of the film interesting um yeah again i didn't have the same experience but also this is just my kind of movie so i was just like kind of just vibing but um i did that's so weird i don't i don't peg this as honestly as your your kind of movie really not the first not not particularly the first half it's just a slice of life movie about people like interacting with each other like i love that well, it's like an uncle and a nephew. I wouldn't say it's like just people interacting with each other, but yeah. But I mean, this, you know, the mom plays a significant role in it. Like, again, I, I, it's just something about Mike Mills and like his writing. Like, I love the way that like the memory, like the memories are such a part of his story. And like mm-hmm. he, the way that he describes characters in this like very sort of literary way when like they're reflecting on experiences with them. Um, I, I I love it. I, I can't, I'm trying to explain it as best as I could. It's really just one of those things you have to like see it. But once you see it, you'll know what I mean. But um. yeah, I, I do think that, I mean, you say that the the sister plays a, a big role. 
I don't think she does really. I think that uh, she's obviously important to the context of the relationship for both of them to understand his relationship, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's relationship with the sister and of course um, the son's relationship with the mother. But like, she's not in the movie very much. It's just the truth. She doesn't have a lot of screen time in this film. She's context for the movie, but doesn't see, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I do disagree with that. Like, I, I don't want to get too much, too deep into it, but uh, I mean, I think she has a lot of screen time actually. I mean, he is constantly calling her, right? Like every single day that like that he is with this kid, like he's calling her like multiple times a day. And that, I mean, I just think those interactions, I love those interactions of like him, like trying to figure out like how to be, how to care for this kid and her being like, yeah, this is my life. Like, this is what I have to deal with on a daily basis. Like, um, you know, some, here's how you can do some of it, but some things you're just going to have to deal with it. Right. That's just like part of being a parent. Um, I, I think she is, she does have a significant role. And again, I really, I think Gabby Hoffman's performance is very lived in and very authentic. So. Oh no, you can't use the A word, Scott. You have to take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I regretted it immediately, but. You, you fell right into the trap. Yeah, I guess so. All right, Scott, I think we've gone on long enough. Where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton2013 on Twitter, on Letterboxd. I'm at Scarby Dent on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope that you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be reviewing the third of the four MCU movies to be released this year, Chloe Zhao's Eternals. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. Mm-hmm.